Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Happy anniversary, darling. We made it to one year. Looks like we made it. Even though the crockery's been flying, the <laughs> arguments have been raging, we're still together. I, I, I still feel as, as uh, infatuated as that first day I met you, Ed. Aww. You've forgiven me for George Ezra. I'm trying to sweep all that stuff Good. under the carpet on our one-year anniversary. I here. actually found, you know, the email that you sent to Stuart Wood, who used to work for me, suggesting the thing the other day. I was looking for something else, and I came across the email. You said... P.S. After setting out the idea, I'm sure this is preposterous and will never happen. Well, it shows how wrong I can be. Well, half of it was right is preposterous, but <laughs> uh, it did happen. And we've got a special guest. Well, my, my wife has come upstairs. You were going to be my reason to be cheerful. This and week, you're Sarah. my reason to be <gasps> well, cheerful. Thank you were going to be my reason to be cheerful because you've just passed your life in the UK test. Oh, thank you very so, much. So we were going to have that. And then, then uh, Ed said, well, why don't we have the, our one-year anniversary yeah. as our reason to be cheerful That's so sweet. instead? Um, thank you for putting up with me and everybody for a year. It's not a problem. Do you um do you ever wonder what our neighbours think of this lot? Moving swiftly on, moving yes, swiftly on. Yes, I do on. wonder. I, would you know? What I, I don't know. I don't wonder what they think about it because I think, think I sort of Masons. know what they would think about I it. I think it's the Masons, basically. <laughs> um, 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 no, I wonder who has an awareness of it. Well, I'll tell the you, traffic wardens. Because traffic you guys wardens. come in the afternoon on a weekday, so yeah. mostly our neighbours aren't home. But often I will look out the window after we finish and Ed, is, Ed is chatting to the traffic wardens, asking them if they'd like a selfie with him. Doing is like that a, true? Doing a dance. Yeah, yeah. Not quite a dance. Oh. Yeah. You seem, yeah. you know, like just inherently someone who would not be great with selfies, but of course it's just so part of your life now. Do you he think that you're it. quite. But, but sure, this is not someone Why who was I... born comfortable having his photo taken. What? Really? Do you not think so? Why would I necessarily not? Why, why would Ed not be comfortable having his photo taken? I just seem like you seem like you wouldn't. No, is that not right? <laughs> He's just pushed his glasses to the end of his nose and given you a Paddington like stare. Do say more, Sarah. <laughs> I th- I don't think either of you seem. You're mm. both nerds, mm. and nerds aren't good at having their photos taken. Am right. I wrong? Wait, it's a revenge of the nerds. Yeah. Everyone in here who is not you guys yeah. is laughing at what I've said because they recognize that I'm right about it. Yeah. Well, I can see why you have, we haven't had you on oh, the last come year. On. <laughs> Wait, I'm, I'm honestly, if you picture yourself at 20 years old, mm-hmm. were you comfortable being photographed? 
Uh, <laughs> I didn't, uh, probably didn't love it, no. Okay, this is yeah. all I'm saying. Right. But you've obviously become very comfortable because of right. what you do professionally. Yeah, you've, you've swerved out of it. You've got a job in the diplomatic service. <laughs> would, would you uh, yeah, like a yeah. selfie with him? Is that is this a long way No, I hate having <laughs> selfies taken. There's nothing I would rather do Why? less than do a selfie. Because I hate having my picture taken. Do you? Yeah. Why? Because I feel very depressed when I see <laughs> photos of myself. Jeff mm. and I are the same with this. And I think I put you in a, I think I made you one of us. Yeah. And I don't, I, what I'm learning in this moment is that you're not. <laughs> special. In this moment. special moment. This special moment. So, so what's it like having three of us in this marriage? You think? Oh, been- yes. I think that you guys have a really nice friendship. We do. And it's really sweet. And so it's made me very happy. Well, I miss him when I'm not aware. I know. It's really, really, really yeah. sweet. It's it's a nice adult friendship for Jeff yeah. to have, I think. <laughs> <laughs> like, you guys haven't known each other since you were 15 or something. No, you know what I true. mean? Like, you found each other and well, it's there is really that thing, nice. Isn't there, but you don't tend to acquire new friends after yeah. a certain Right. Age. And it's really bad for like male mental health or something. Really? Yeah. Isn't that a thing that like all men would have lower suicide rates if they made more friends over yeah. the age of 40? And look, we've got a beautiful late in life male friendship. Yeah. You late do. in life. <laughs> That's making me depressed. Um, but look, thank you for being so tolerant, funny, <laughs> patient, charming, generous, hospitable. <gasps> Not uh, a problem. And an all-round great person. I'm a great gal. Yeah. <laughs> how, how has our, our one-year anniversary become a, about her? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Because like, Ed does like me. You are yeah. a likable Which, character. Yeah, but you wouldn't. But yes, yes. Sarah Barron, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to goes. be here. Thanks for having me. So, so what? What is our one year anniversary special all about? Then we're talking about renewables this week. The the, the this is the it's like sort of blankety blank. Yes. Chinese cities are adding blank electric buses the size of the London bus fleet every blank. Um, Chinese cities are adding edible. Electric buses the size of the London bus fleet every time they get a bit hungry. Nope. Every five weeks, Chinese cities are adding 9,500 electric buses the size of the entire London bus fleet. She didn't get a chance to answer. She was going to say that. I Yeah, yeah that's what I was going to say. That's that was my guess. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. But don't I just feel like I have no China's sense of things country. in yeah, China. It's just going to be some astoundingly large number. I mean, basically, the, what we're discussing is... You know, there's lots of reasons to be gloomy about climate change. The climate is changing, blah, blah, blah. But there is this revolution going on, not just the uptake of solar, wind, renewable energy, but the cost as well and the cost of battery power. And it is going so quickly that we are very, very soon, probably we've got it already, getting to the point where renewables are the cheapest energy there is. And that is a sort of revolution and nobody really predicted it. And it's gone so much faster than anyone thought. And I think we're still coming to terms with the implications of it. It doesn't mean we're going to necessarily beat dangerous climate change, but it gives us a much better chance of doing so. And that's what we're talking about. And we will be joined by comedian Suze Kempner to pitch her ideas for Reasons to be Cheerful. Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We have to change. Can we change? This is the exciting news. The best projections in the world 16 years ago were that by 2010, the world would be able to install 30 gigawatts of wind capacity. We beat that mark by 14 and a half times over. We see an exponential curve for wind installations now. We see the cost coming down dramatically. 
Some countries uh, take Germany, an industrial powerhouse, one day last uh, December got 81% of all of its energy from renewable sources, mainly solar and wind. A lot of countries are getting more than half on an average basis. More good news, energy storage uh, from batteries particularly is now beginning to take off because the cost has been coming down very dramatically to solve the intermittency problem. With solar, the news is even more exciting. The best projections 14 years ago were that we would install one gigawatt per year by 2010. When 2010 came around, we beat that mark by 17 times over. Last year, we beat it by 58 times over. This year, we're on track to beat it 68 times over. We're going to win this. We are going to prevail. I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by Jeremy Leggett of Solar Century and Juliet Davenport, who is CEO of Good Energy. Thank you so much for joining us, both of you. Thank you for inviting us. Just to start off with, we just heard this uh, clip from Al Gore in his TED Talk celebrating the success of how the costs of solar energy, uh, wind energy and so on have been coming down. Jeremy, just start off by saying something, because I think it is good news, about what's happened in the last decade in terms of these issues and, and, and kind of where we are compared to where we thought we would be? Well, I, I think that the cost down has taken almost everybody by surprise. Those of us who know um, the power of, of solar um, always knew the price would come down. But I think even we have taken a bit, been taken a bit by surprise at how fast that's happened and how quickly we've become competitive with fossil fuels. So solar century is 20 years old and for the first 10 of those years it it really was a bit like um, pushing rocks uphill Um, but from about 2006 when the price down the cost down really started to happen um, so the market has started to take off and and it's now uh, growing exponentially Uh, we can beat fossil fuels and certainly nuclear in most markets uh, and especially, you know, when we're hooked up with batteries, it's it's a no-brainer. And that includes gas in a growing number of markets. So we're looking at being able to see off fossil fuels and nuclear um, completely now. So that for, for me, the question that remains is, you know, just how hard what remains of the incumbency is going to fight in their rearguard action. Uh, and of course, much depends on that environmentally and economically. In one of your recent presentations, Jeremy, you said that, according to Morgan Stanley, renewable energy will be the cheapest form of power in almost every country by 2020. Just say a little bit more about that, because that's really what's driving this take up, isn't it? Yes. And, um, you know, increasingly, you can you can see this uh, everywhere. It's it's uncontroversial. Bloomberg is very good at at covering this Uh, these days is commenting on how there's existential threat for the uh, for the fossil fuel companies um, and those who invest in them and real threat across multiple sectors you know for people who get this wrong who who don't who don't go with the flow as it were and just this week carbon tracker came out with its latest report the financial think tank based in london um, and they're looking at uh, 
a peak in fossil fuel demand. That's all fossil fuel demand in in the 2020s. Uh, Their best estimate is 2023. And once the demand for fossil fuels starts to drop, and it can drop quite quickly, that's when assets get stranded. And they um, they say that they think that the extent of, of of assets in previous investments in in fossil fuels, because there's roughly fifty trillion dollars worth of past investment um, left in fossil fuels, uh, that's going to devalue. In some cases, going to zero value very quickly, and and this is a an enormous challenge for companies and investors. The whole shale story is built on an edifice of... This is fracking, basically. Yes, it's built on an edifice of delusion. Um, and, you know, uh, the the challenge that we have in the clean energy um, industries is to um, you know, do, the, do the best we can to be the cavalry and ride to the rescue. Juliet, can I bring you in here? I'd like to um, ask you yeah. to tell us about what good energy does and, and why you set it up. My background is I started life as interested in climate science. I studied climate science in university and I, I went on a bit of a journey after I left to kind of try and figure out how could I make the biggest difference to climate and climate science. And um, so I started, I did a little bit of academia, did a little bit, I'd studied economics for a while. I then went and worked in government in the European Commission, um, European Parliament. Um, but but one of the things that kept coming back to me, it was actually um, quite often when we talk about technology and we talk about energy, we forget the users of it. So we don't connect the sources of power, the sources of our energy back to people. And, and, and um, that kind of has been lost for a very long time. Uh, and, and so part of when I set up Good Energy back sort of in the early 2000s, was really about trying to reconnect people to where their energy comes from and how they use it. And that, that was a kind of journey we've been on. Um, and part of that really powerfully came through, really right at the start of the company, that people wanted to generate their own power. They wanted energy independence almost. Um, and the way we set up our energy systems over the last sort of century have been very centralised, very con- controlled by either government or large organisations. Um, and the consumer has kind of been the meter on the end. I mean, I remember right back at the beginning of the, when I started working in the industry, nobody talked about customers, really. They talked about meters and they talked about the wires and they talked about the generation assets. They didn't talk about the person, the other side of the meter, what what they were doing. Um, And I suppose that that was really where good energy started from. We we went out, we bought energy from local renewable suppliers. We work with a kind of about 1,400 suppliers in the UK. Um, But also we work with nearly 140,000 homes who generate power in their own homes. So we we really became that that long term vision of um, people can be part of this solution. People can be part of the debate around energy um, and we can bring it closer to people's poems um, and, and closer to people's consciousness, actually, was, was really, I guess, part of the reason I set it up. Um, and look, one of the things that I think it's important for us to touch on, uh, Juliet, let me ask you this, is, you know, the, 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 the rap on renewables has always been what happens when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine. But of course, and Jeremy yeah. has made references, the, 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 what's happened in battery technology and the costs of battery technology is as remarkable as what's happened in relation to solar and wind and, and is obviously 
key to transforming the limits of what renewables can do. Is that right? Yes. I mean, I think what, what's been interesting is that um, we work with a mixture of renewables. So we have some wind, we have some solar, uh, we have some anaerobic digestion, we have some small hydro. And, and when you add them together, they actually fit relatively well. Not perfectly, so you need more than just those. Um, but but a lot of the scathing original sort of just debates that we heard from sort of more traditional engineering type approach um, has been slightly unfounded and, and just by having a diversity of technologies in your system actually really helps. And then you add batteries into that and you begin to get to a whole system answer. Um, and I think the, the battery obviously is transformed. We, electric vehicles, I think, have really driven a lot of the de- the debate around batteries. So you've got electrification of the transport process that's driven down both innovation and change in the battery market. I, I think being driven not really by some of the climate parts, but more by the by the pollution issues related to, to cars. Um, and so we're seeing that come the track down the track really quite helpfully to then start to move into the overall energy market that can then help us balance renewables. And yes, once you start to bring that in as a technology, um, that becomes really exciting. And am I am I right that you're implying though that battery technology doesn't yet allow us to go to 100% renewables or? Is that something that might happen in the future? What, what, what's the thinking on that of both of you? So I think the technology allows you to get there. What we haven't quite got yet is the economics of it. So and, and, and in, I think I think in certain circumstances, the economics stack up very well where you've got um, completely decentralised grids, um, where you've got standalone systems. Um, at the moment, we're just beginning to break through and get the, t- the, the economics to stand up in the UK market. And that's that that's going to be the next breakthrough. It doesn't it's not quite there yet, but it's not far off. Jeremy, do you want to come in on this? Yeah, well, I agree. We could certainly get to 100 uh, percent renewables and increasingly, you know, the, there's a vast community of, of practitioners who are very, very bullish about this. But just to be clear on the economics, so Juliet's talking about the economics now today, we're a long way from getting to 100% renewables. And most all the, the, the studies that model how we get there, and some of them, um, you know, get there surprisingly early, uh, show that we, we can do that um, and save money on the infrastructure that we would have been investing in had we been stupid enough to keep killing ourselves with fossil fuels and nuclear. Uh, and that also, I think, is un- uncontroversial. And if, if people want references to this uh, on my website, um, there there are some studies summarised. One that I would point to, I think the most impressive one I know, is done by a, a big team at a university in Finland that modelled the global energy economy on an hourly basis using a year's worth of real weather data. So to your point about, you know, um, the sun shining and the wind blowing. So with real data for a whole year, uh, they they get, they get to a hundred percent renewables, and um, you know that they they do it well before the time that we have to do it by if we're going to be consistent with the promises that governments have made in the Paris Agreement on climate change. And let's not forget that either. Every independent government on the planet has promised to do this, promised to get to net zero emissions. 
um, you know, in time to save the climate from the worst ravages that are coming. People may be cynical about what governments are actually doing to back up that that those promises, and that they'd be right to be cynical about many governments. But you know, that's what we have to hold them to. Which countries are overachieving when it comes to renewables? Can you give us some success stories from around the world? Well, uh, I think Sweden comes, I don't know what Juliet would say, but Sweden comes immediately to mind. You know, they're, they're taking this very seriously. Yeah. They're, they're bringing, um, they've, they've got a, a law that gets them to, to, to zero carbon. They had wind targets. I can't remember the figures off the top of my head, but they had a target for, as I recall, 2030 for, um, uh, for you know, a particular contribution of wind towards their net zero target. And they achieved it. They're going to achieve it in 2019. They're installing wind so fast in, in Sweden. So, you know, that's one example. Jeff is a big, Jeff is a big Swedophile, so he's, he's smiling broadly at this. Juliet, is there anywhere you would point to in the world that's particularly outstanding? So I think, I think it's... Yeah, so there's some great shout out. I mean, there's some countries, obviously, who've got the natural resources coming out of their ears and low, small populations. So you've got places like Iceland, that's pretty much 100%. I think it's the highest percentage of renewables per person in the world. Um, You've obviously got Sweden, Jeremy touched on, but you've also got big call outs to Costa Rica and Nicaragua, um, where you kind of got nearly 100% both those countries. Um, and, and what's great about those is they start to really, as Jeremy said, set that vision, set the kind of get rid of the naysayer so it's not possible and kind of go, yeah, but it is. Look, it's already happening. Um, the UK was done pretty well. I mean, it's gone from 2% renewables when I started. And today we're close to 30% renewable electricity in the UK. So it's, it's, it, we've, got, we've come a long way. I mean, it's a bit disappointing we've dropped back over the last couple of years, but we've come a long way. Why have we dropped back? <laughs> we had a change of government um, who decided that onshore wind and onshore solar were no longer politically acceptable, unfortunately. And is, is, is that about people complaining about the, what these wind farms look like? I think it's about a limited number of people complaining um, in marginal constituencies, unfortunately. I think that that's, that's driven it. I mean, if you look at the acceptability figures in the UK, so I think 82% of people in the UK expressed um, a, a support for re- renewables, which is an increase on last time. And I think it's like 83%... Uh, 87% of support for onshore wind. Uh, so you're kind of going, well, who's complaining? I mean, why why are we taking a national policy that is saying we shouldn't do... I mean, what, what other thing do you have 87% support for? I, I really don't know. Um, so it feels like it's a marginal, small number of people, influential people who have pushed this away, which is a real shame for this country. And give us a sense, both of you, of, of, of what are the things that we're not doing at the moment in the UK that we that we could be doing. There's a sort of more or less moratorium on onshore wind. Is that right? Yeah. And onshore large-scale solar as well. Right. Jeremy? Well, and small-scale solar. I mean, <laughs> solar generally is just being pushed off a cliff by the, the current government. It's, it's truly awful. 
And is that because they is that because they're saying it can't have any subsidy anymore? Is that the is that what's changed? Or you know, we don't need much in the way of subsidy, but we, uh, you know, the latest thing that they're contemplating doing, they're they're consulting on. They've already made up their minds. They're going they're going to do it, but they're consulting the way uh, the civil service does is um, not pay not even pay a tariff for solar electricity that is exported from people's roofs once they've bought a solar roof. I mean, it's, it's almost incredible. Well, why? I mean, can I just ask what? I mean, I, I obviously should declare an interest in this because I introduced the feed-in tariff as the climate change secretary, which was a uh, and, and was quite a relatively generous subsidy. But what, 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 is the, what is their reasoning? What is their official reasoning behind that? The informants that I have um, tell me that there is still an incredible philosophical built-in prejudice towards nuclear on the one hand and shale gas on the other. And, and you know, we are a clear and present danger. Let's not beat around the bush. We are a clear and present danger. And um, they've been, we're now dealing with the third sort of wave of existential assault. We, we saw off two under the coalition government, where at one time in 2011, um, the, you know, the, the coalition government were, were literally trying to kill the solar industry. And I was told that by senior civil servants. I was told that by people in the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democratic Party in positions to know. I mean, you know, the, the, we're really dealing with belief systems here. I don't want to let you off the hook, Ed. I mean, let's, <laughs> let's not pretend that it was a bed of roses with the Labour government. I mean, clearly you guys were better than the current lot. But I have to say, I don't know if Juliet would agree, not by much. <laughs> I have to say, I think it was it was dramatically changed at the end when when Ed did bring in the feeding tariff. I mean, that was possibly one of the biggest transformations in the UK energy market, where we saw. I mean, we we saw we saw over the next five years a transformation. Which one of the things that was most brilliant about it was having sat around with a bunch of CEOs from the big six. Um, having all their forecasts about the fact that the UK is not sunny. I sat next to one CEO saying, well, it's not very sunny in the UK, so solar won't work. Um, having them proved wrong was fantastic. So um, that period of feed-in tariff and post-feed-in tariff, I know, Jeremy, it felt like everybody was trying to kill the solar industry, but it was also an incredibly exciting time because we got an amazing amount of solar deployed in a very short period of time. And we also ended up with nearly a, a million people generating power in the UK, which was suddenly we had a million small generators. Amazing. That was just and, and, and I still see now, even though it's really tough now, I kind of do see a bit of a bright future coming where we get ourselves back together and we start to see this happening again. I agree. Let, let's let's t- let's take a risk here, which is to make you both the um, ministers for um, energy, uh, renewable energy <laughs> in in the in the, in what we call the this is what we call the Jeffocracy, which is uh, Jeff as the benign ruler, um, or he assures yeah. me he'll be benign. Um, what are the specifics that we should be doing in the UK, Juliet? Why don't you start? Well, I think first of all, you, you stop you stop subsidising nuclear and fracking. They're the two things you immediately stop. Um, you you basically look at. Um, how you can get best value, as Jeremy is saying. Do you want to just explain from your point of view what you what what the subsidy looks like? And I know this 
differences, you know, contract for differences is hard to explain, but that's... Yeah, that, yeah, yeah I yeah. just think for our listeners... So a contract for difference is a long-term, fixed-rate, guaranteed price contract, which is incredibly valuable for anybody who wants to go and see, secure funding. So it means that banks will lend to you because they know you've got a guaranteed income coming forwards, and they will lend to you at very, very low rates. So that's so, so not only is it subsidized above the market rate, so you're guaranteed this price above market rate, you also will get um, there, there's a secondary sort of slightly slightly less seen subsidy is that it's you've taken away all the risk. So that means that those kind of power plants can get really, really low interest rates on the, any debt they borrow. And just for the benefit of our li- just for the benefit of our listeners, what's the price that the Hinkley Point nuclear power station has been agreed at, and what and how does that compare to what renewables might offer? So at the moment, and I, I might get this wrong, it's in the order of ninety pounds, somewhere between ninety and hundred pounds from from recollection. It's a roughly a thirty-five year contract. Um, so renewables now, you can start to see renewables. Uh, we're seeing some of the offshore winds come in at 60, 70 pounds. Solar, Jeremy, uh, I might get this wrong, is similar, kind of 60, 70 pounds. You could build, start to build solar again in the UK. Onshore wind, definitely at that kind of rate. So, so, so we're basically, we're locking in 35 years of a cost that's already 30, 30 pounds above the technologies. And the other thing you've got to remember about nuclear is we've never seen nuclear technology costs come down. So so we're at a point now in solar and wind where we can continue to see those prices come down. Nuclear, we're locked into a technology that's just not going to decrease. Um, so you, you kind of go, why are we future generations are going to have to pay? So you're worried about the subsidy for nuclear. What, what else would you what, what else would you be doing if you were if Jeff put you in charge? I kind of look very hard at the heat market and see what we've done. So we, we had a system called ECO for many years, which was where we were trying to get, make large energy suppliers put in energy efficiency, which would then mean they would lose margins. And I always thought this was a bit mad because the last person you want to put in charge of trying to reduce costs, reduce, reduce consumers' costs, so those people are going to suffer as a result of it. So I kind of think we need to rethink about how we use heat in the UK. Heat is one of the biggest areas we haven't really made any inroads in in terms of our renewables targets. And it's the big thing that we're outstanding. So we kind of need to completely rethink about how we insulate our homes in the UK and how we deliver any policy mechanism that's really effective to do that. We need to make sure we've got controls. So smart meters are part of that. But we need to basically start making sure that every home has a smart thermostat. Every home is not wasting anything. We've got comfortable homes, but we're not wasting anything at all. And then look at what other technologies can we start to really support. So should we be looking at a solar thermal support? We haven't had solar thermal works perfectly well in this country. and We just had kind of no rollout of that kind of technology at all in the UK. Do you want to just explain for our listeners what solar thermal is? Yeah, so essentially it is, I mean, it, the, the very, the most basic technology you could just do at home by having a hose pipe and putting it out either on your lawn or your drive in the sun. And you will then turn the tap on later and part of that water will be hot. That is essentially solar thermal, but it's obviously a bit more sophisticated than that these days. So they have right. tubes, you tend to put them on the roof. They tend to be black. You pour water through them, they absorb the heat from the sun, and then that goes into partially supporting the heat in terms of your, your energy system in your home. Jeremy, uh, over to you. So you've got this job share with Juliet. What, what, would, you be, um, 
what would you be asking for or what would you be doing let's look at fracking uh, you know most people don't appreciate that in america this um revolution uh, there's the oil industry it likes to think of it it is completely underwritten with a mountain of debt the the oil and gas production ha- has clocked up hundreds of billions of dollars in debt doing an, something that's fundamentally economic they haven't found a way as an industry yet at any time since it started in 2007 2008 to um to to make it economic and there are no reasons why these economics are going to be any different in the UK in fact they're going to be worse because we purport to have better environmental standards than the Americans which is going to add on cost so none of this is going to make any money it's going to lose companies money build up debt and they can only uh, take on that debt because of course the banks are lending at such low interest rates but at some point it's a bubble and it's going to burst uh, and yet this government is prepared to literally bribe people <laughs> to to allow fracking underneath their homes forgive my ignorance here but is government actually paying out money to for for fracking intending to yes they have said that they will they will pay money direct into the bank accounts of householders who accept fracking under their right. homes and communities bribery straight bribery what else would you want to positively to be doing, uh, Jeremy, if you were the the minister? Well, I'd stop all that, and I'd do everything that, Ju- that Juliet said, uh, and there's a lot more that can be done with clean, green energy as well, as, as our big companies are realising. I mean, National Grid is working with Google on how to make the flow of electrons along the, le- the, the National Grid optimally efficient uh, and as cheap as possible. It's marvellous, the potential we have. And yet we have a civil service and a political car- class in, uh, in, in government who are, you know, flogging these dead horses of nuclear and oil and gas in the in their sunshine years because of their belief systems, you know, and, and who their friends are. And it's really bad. I, I You know, I think in, in many ways, you know, you were talking about the contracts, the contracts for difference and the nuclear economics, but, you know, the, the very latest nuclear development, Wolver, you know, the, the nuclear power plant that they're trying to build after um, they failed with Hinkley Point because they're never going to succeed with Hinkley Point. But anyway, the, the next one in line is Wilver. They can't persuade private industry to invest in it. So guess what? Guess who's investing in it? You know, five billion pounds of our taxpayers' money is what. You know, they, they're both, they're, people who are supposed to believe in the free markets are actually actually using taxpayers' money at that level to buy shares in in fundamentally uneconomic technologies that our national audit office has already said um, can never compete. Julia, are you thinking that there's no role for nuclear in the future or are you thinking there's a limited role? Because there are obviously some people who say that you do need nuclear for the baseload um so-called uh you know even with battery storage and all that i think the the future is going to be about digitization of energy so we're going to move to a system so it wasn't long ago that the way the national grid worked is that the national grid was see that they'd be they'd be looking at the radio times and they'd see that there was a big football match um and they'd figure out and they'd give somebody a call down the other end and say Oi, Bob, can you switch that power station on? 
that's not how the future is going to work. And I think we're still stuck in this world of we need baseload power. It's not. We are going to have dynamic demand. We are going to have people's households, people's cars, anywhere that you use energy changing and it's going to be flexible and it's going to be we're going to be able to switch it on and off and it's not going to be consumers who do this it's going to be their own households their own homes their own cars that will be switching on and off when we need so the need for baseload will go away the baseload was only there because we never managed energy properly previously so what we're going to see is a huge you know the conversation i said about the whole energy industry was focused one side of the meter we're now suddenly going to be the other side of the meter with the customer and we're going to be there's going to be data about people's homes there's going to be data about what they're using and we're going to figure out ways of not having to have these huge systems that we had before and so nuclear the need for nuclear just goes away basically as far as i'm concerned but there's also the need for massive infrastructure that we've seen with national grid and some of the local grid will also begin to diminish as we actually you start to use and balance our energy locally uh, in, a, in a much more effective way. And that that is where the future will go, definitely. I mean, you, you, the biggest one of the biggest accommodation companies in the world, Airbnb, is, doesn't own any accommodation. Some of the biggest power companies in the world will not necessarily own power stations in the future. And that that's, that's the change we will see in this world. And there's obviously a big amount of jobs in this. I mean, I think there are 10 million jobs worldwide yeah. in the new renewable industry. Uh, and there's presumably a big opportunity yeah. for the UK here as we think about the future. I think as long as we keep training engineers and as long as we keep looking, I mean, there's, I think there will be, I mean, uh, one of the biggest team at Good Energy now is on our in our IT and digital team. And that is how I see the future of our business being. It's, it's gonna be about the renewable technologies are important, but, but actually how we then bring that into a customer experience and how consumers get involved is gonna be off the scale. It's gonna be the thing that completely changes this market. You both got the job in the Jeffocracy. <laughs> when I move into Buckingham Palace, there will be solar power. No, it's Buckingham panels. Palace now, is it? Yeah, because I'm not just a prime minister, am I? Oh, I'm a see, supreme, head of, head of supreme state. leader. I see. Yeah, so God, well. when I move in there, there'll be solar panels on the roof. There'll be one of those hose pipes that uh, Juliet was talking about. <laughs> I'm going to have it all. It, it sounds good. Juliet, Davenport and Jeremy Leggett, thank you so much for joining us. Our pleasure. Thank you. Lovely. Well, I think there are some reasons to be cheerful in there, aren't there? Yeah, and, and I feel that this whole thing has been a real education for me on renewable energy, which yeah. I, I had it in my head. We were still at the stage with renewable energy where it's a nice idea, but actually in terms of the efficiency and what it costs, we're, we're still miles off. And that's not the case at all, especially with the uh, advances in battery technology. So it's quite an exciting time and all these different countries are going to be hitting their renewable targets ahead of schedule. There's lots of good news there. Yeah, and I think what I said at the beginning of about China is really important because they are, I mean, frankly, just sweeping the board when it comes to the technology, jobs and all that, because they're just putting a really big investment into it. I think I think the, the other thing is the nuclear thing is obviously sort of controversial. Different people have different views on this, whether we do or don't need nuclear. I mean, the, the sort of history of this is that the climate movement was very opposed to nuclear. Then some people in the who cared about climate change, including me, thought, well, actually, the dangers of climate change are so great that we still need all the technologies. 
I think the question now, and it is a question, is whether not the so much the safety that obviously remains an issue, but whether the economics is moving against nuclear, whether it is just becoming too expensive compared to these other things. And I just don't know enough about how much the battery technology can solve this baseload problem. But I definitely think there is reasons for optimism. I mean, the other thing we didn't say is, of course, the science of climate change and the dangers of climate change are you know, gathering pace. So it is a sort of race against time. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. We'd love to hear from you if you would like to send us an email, tell us what you think about what you've heard this week um but if you've got any reason to feel optimistic about renewables if you've got any ideas for future episodes you can email us reasons you'd like to wish us happy birthday happy anniversary yeah, yeah. Uh, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com uh, this first one comes from rachel walker who says hello ed and jeff i blame you both for contracting food poisoning last night oh while making my dinner, I was listening to your episode about food wastage. Whilst deciding on what to cook, I saw I had some macaroni with pork I'd oh, made a no. couple of days before that I'd left in the fridge, which was only a couple of days out of date. While I might normally have thrown it out since I was listening to you guys discussing how much our country wastes and how best before dates were on the advisory, I decided it would probably be fine. Today, my four-year vomitless streak quite literally went down the toilet. Don't worry, I won't hold a grudge. That's very Although nice I of might her. be more cautious about taking your advice quite so literally in the future. Well, do it, you think we need a medical disclaimer at the end of the show? Well, it might be too late for that now. We, I mean, could, do, we could get Gail Loftus to say it very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, there was best before dates and use before dates. Well, I don't know. I think you can play fast and loose with the best before, but not yeah. with the use by yeah. is the thing. Four years is a good vomitless streak as well. Yeah, and it, it's not good. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, anyway, Rachel, we 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 kind of um, apologise for having poisoned you. Uh, Thomas Jepson, he hasn't been poisoned. He also uh, emailed in, hey, Millie Bay and Jeff. Sorry, I don't know the fandom nickname for you. Uh, that's you. Uh, I've just finished listening to the Food for Thought episode. I've been using Olio for a few months now. And even as one person, I can't believe how much I have to post on there. The cans of sliced fruit I've had in the cupboard for two months and forgot about. The sweet potatoes left over from Tuesday's dinner. And even non-food items like the spare nappies my daughter has grown out of or the lamp I replaced last year all go on there. Everything I've posted has been requested and collected by the end of the day. I've had pensioners, single parents on benefits, and just general people could use a few garlic cloves, come for things, and it feels great compared to throwing away things I've paid for that other people would need to go to pay for. I can't recommend the app enough. Also, a big fan of the podcast helps me get through my 12-hour days. I'd love hearing your views on vegetarian veganism. As for a guest on the topic, Gaz Oakley, the vegan chef, could offer some great suggestions. He released a whole vegan cookbook and makes gourmet vegan foods. Episode 34. Yes, we, we did a good episode on veganism, yep, didn't we? we did. Yep. Uh, this comes from Mike Garside, who writes, Hi, Bert and Ernie. 
Mm. Now, this doesn't mean much to you. No, it went over my head, sorry. You weren't allowed to watch Sesame Street as a boy. Because ITV problem. <laughs> you're only allowed to watch the BBC. Yeah, yeah. So if or I play was, Glass Struggle. If I was to sing Rubber Ducky, You're the One, that would mean nothing to nope. you. Okay. Nope. Uh, Mike says, I work in the food industry for one of the major retailers. Through my work, I visit and meet many major and smaller suppliers. One issue that I don't think was discussed in this week's podcast is that the industry profits from food waste. I had a conversation with a major bread supplier this year where they openly said that for an average white loaf, they know that around 40% will go to waste. However, if they only sell the appropriate amount, then their profit margin will go down as it's in their interest to sell a family two big loaves at a higher price than two smaller loaves with no waste. There's also an issue with customer perception. We all reach to the back of the fridge to get the milk with an extra day, even if we know we'll use it well before then. I do that. Mm. Um, that causes massive waste. The same is true with bag salad. People will buy a bag with longer life, even though they plan using it that evening. I suppose something in your head says it's fresher. Yeah. And that's why you're probably doing it. Uh, the retailers and suppliers have a lot of work to do, uh, but there is uh, work needed to what change interesting, the what, standard behaviour of consumers. Yeah, yeah what absolutely. an interesting email. And then, not on the subject of food waste, we've got an email from Georgia Strachan. Firstly, I'd like to say that I'm a huge fan of the podcast and haven't missed a single episode since it started. Uh, that's very good. Uh, I saw the phenomenal Karen McCluskey episode at the Fringe. That was episode 50. Uh, so I'd like to say thanks for making such an inspiring podcast. I'm just getting in touch after one of Phil Wang's reasons to be cheerful on this week's podcast, mainly to suggestions that homophobes shouldn't be allowed to use computers or, as he put it, Turing machines. I work for the Turing Trust, a charity set up by Alan Turing's closest family. The Turing Trust, among other things, takes donations of PCs from UK households, businesses, universities, schools, and puts them into schools in Africa to make sure that students are getting the opportunity to gain digital skills. As well as helping students, our work is also environmentally friendly by reducing the carbon footprint of each PC. So far, our work has erased 119 UK carbon footprints and supported over 25,000 students in four African countries with ICT. We also support volunteers in the UK, particularly in Edinburgh, where we're based. It would be amazing if you give us a shout out, consider it done, Georgia, or if you know of any organisations refreshing their IT to tell them about us as we're in the process of expanding our project in Malawi and need as much ICT equipment as possible. We're a small charity and appreciate any support we can get. Look them up. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. And here with her own personal manifesto to pitch some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we're joined by comedian Suze Kempner. Hello. Hi. You have been busy. You've done Edinburgh mm -hmm. and you're doing your Edinburgh show again in London. That's right. Yeah, I'm doing it at the Bill Murray, which is near angel tube and what is the show it's called supersonic 90s kid okay it's about growing up in the 90s playing computer games do you know who would not jeff enjoy grew up in the 90s well this is it <laughs> yeah. i'll tell you who would not enjoy that show is ed because you have no memory of any pop culture from the 90s <laughs> no i didn't it's, no. it's almost like gordon brown ate his entire yeah. life in the 90s <laughs> true. he's really that's good true, on 80s actually. trivia that's but the true. 90s are this huge black hole for oh, you well i had a lot of people like that came to the show and gordon afterwards brown. gordon brown <laughs> yeah lots of people who worked for him <laughs> <laughs> they said i worked for gordon brown yeah, in the exactly. 80s and 90s yeah. and uh, but i and i didn't expect to enjoy this but i still did okay so so maybe it is still the show for you. What's the iconic thing from the 90s that's in your show? Well, Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so did you did you have a misspent youth spent in front of a television or you down the arcades? Uh, I had a 
a, a mixture of things. Had my Sega Master System and Mega Drive plugged into the telly, but also was out uh, around horses because despite humble beginnings, my mum is a dressage rider. So, so right. yeah, yeah. She's the poorest woman in dressage. Professionally? Yeah, that's her job. Wow. Yeah. What's her name? Anna Kempner. Wow. Is there just one horse that she works with? Is he... She... <laughs> is, it a, is it like a double act? I don't know anything about dressage. She... Um... <laughs> what horse she works <laughs> My question is, is it like being in a double act? Is it you and the same horse in every yeah. competition? I've clearly done a lot of dressage interviews before, haven't you? I mean, you're an experienced broadcaster with clear depth in dress and dressage. I mean, at least you can say, okay. do, do the horses like carrots? Is she in a human horse? Is she in a partnership? Is she in a partnership with a horse, or is it? Is it you know just a collection selection of one night stands? I mean, what's, what's the, the answer setup? is not nearly as much fun as the question. Right. Uh, she has uh, several horses that she <laughs> works with regularly. This <laughs> and, conversation is taking on an expected turn. <laughs> so it's not like this, the Lone Ranger. You have the same horse. Uh, there's probably loads of different horses. <laughs> it just gave them all the same name because he didn't care enough. I mean, it's just the true pro that Jeff is. You know, yeah. He's got a question for every occasion, you, apart were, from dress up. Were you a fan of shows like Black Beauty when you were growing up? Was that yeah, yeah. No, I used to watch it. I'm very unrealistic. Okay, yeah. so you've brought along some ideas, which could be yes. potential reasons to be cheerful. I, ha- I What's have. the first one? Right. Okay, if you ask someone on a date and they say no, they have to send you £5 by backs for you to get yourself some crisps and dips. Right. Yeah. So Sue's manifesto, rejecting someone means the rejectee gets crisps and dips now. So there should be some kind of compensation element yes. to it. Yeah. Crisps, crisps and dips, whatever dips you like. Is there no limit to the amount of dates you could ask people on, though? And then you could sort so, of... So uh, yeah. let's be clear here. So okay. we're not talking about cancelled dates. No. Just, it's, just rejection. If you ask someone and they go, oh, no, I don't really want to do that with you. Just they have to send you five pounds. So, by so pounds. people swipe these days anyway. Oh, that's... I wouldn't count that. I think if they've done something bad, like cancelled a date, I, th- I would yeah. be completely on board with this policy. Okay. It's cold calling, isn't it? You're cold it's calling. It's obviously touching uh... a sensitive spot. <laughs> Did you worry just, that your bank account lots of people suffer? ask Jeff out. And you know, yeah. to say think no. of yeah. what it would mean yeah. for him. Yeah. I mean, yeah. How yeah. Many Financial ruin. Yeah. 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 For people. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you're more sympathetic. I'm more sympathetic, yeah. Okay. okay. All right, right, we'll have that. What, what's yeah. next then? Great. On the last day of school, when everyone brings in videos, it's a lot of fun. You remember this? Yes. From, yeah. yeah. It, I assume it still happens. But when you get back after the holidays, it, it's back to stale old lessons. Sue's manifesto, on the first day back from holidays, you get to finish watching the video now. And maybe then I'd finally get to see the second half of The Mask. There's something to look forward to when you yeah. go back. Yeah. We should have had that. Mm-hmm. Before our summer break, yeah, we could have brought in class struggle again. Your favourite board game. I still got it at home. <laughs> you still got that? Yeah, <laughs> it belongs to one of our listeners. And it does. It? I know. I do need to return it. Class yeah. struggle. By the time yeah. of next Christmas, have you not heard of class struggle? No. Oh, it's a great game. It's like Monopoly, but for somebody from a more Marxist yeah. background. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds yeah. right or up my street. No, my na- my nana would love it. I think really? fat, yeah. yeah. What's your nana's name? Joan Schneider. She's not into dressage as well, is she? No, she thinks it's a ridiculous pursuit. She graduated from Cambridge the first year women could get a degree from Cambridge. Wow. And what did she do after Cambridge? A modern languages teacher. Amazing. She speaks a bunch of languages. She learned Welsh just for a laugh. That's great. All right, Suze, what do we have next? (laughs) If you're one of those people who has their parents paying their rent, you've got an unfair advantage. Sue's manifesto, those parents now pay half of your rent 
and half of my reign <laughs> level the playing field, even things up. There's a, there's a lot of financial compensation in your <laughs> ideas, <laughs> yeah. isn't there? There's yeah. a thread starting to emerge. Yep. How would your mother and grandmother react to these ideas? Uh, grandmother they, don't, they don't own me. They don't own you. <laughs> that's that's got, good to know. I've got, we are all fierce left-wing women. But, Is that right? Yeah. But, Including your dressage mother. Oh, yeah. She must be the most oh, lefty she, dressage rider she, in the world. You, at dinner parties... It's carnage. Really? <laughs> she goes, you're not allowed to come on this one because wow. the rich people think that we're ganging up on them. Her best friend said to her, you've got a real chip on your shoulder about people who have money to my mum. And what? she's like, no, no, it's just selfish racists that I have a problem with. And they, yeah, Your mum sounds amazing. She really does. What an amazing line of women in your family. Yeah, fierce left-wing women. The union of left-wing dressage riders, <laughs> I would have thought, was quite small. It is. It's very small. And my mum will meet someone else in dressage who shares her views and they're like, whisper about it. How did you vote? Did you? Wow. Oh, it's difficult, isn't it? They get like that. She's a Corbynite dressage rider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. wow. Amazing. Yeah. Here, do you want the next one? Yes. Free school dinners. Everybody gets them. Kids, teachers, adults, me, you. So it's lunchtime now. Are we hungry? Yes. Let's go down to the school for a free school dinner. Everyone gets them I think it's now. a very, very good idea because that is community. Yeah. Yep. Jeff, you'd have to talk to some people. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's the downside. <laughs> there is something really important in this, which is that they've done these experiments, haven't they, with putting old people's homes next to nurseries. Yeah, they love and, it when yeah. the kids go in. And the you know, older people absolutely love it. Yeah. And I think there's something about you know inviting the community in. I'm sure you're onto something with this. What were the classic school dinners when you were at school? Classic school dinners, uh, instant mash, love instant mash. Yeah, spam fritters. Um, I we had spam, spam fritters. fritters at my school. Semolina. Semolina. We had a lot, yeah, and I yeah. hated semolina yeah. and custard with a big skin on it. Mm. Yeah. So is Jam roly-poly? Yes. Is, is this what we're all going to be eating? Macaroni it? cheese? I don't know. What kids? It's 18 Fish years since I was last quiche. at school. Yeah, glock quiche. <laughs> Are you just naming yeah, yeah. This is a big thing. I think there's an interesting asymmetry here, which is that you're more likely to remember your dessert, not your... Not That's your true. mains. Arctic yes. rice. Interesting, you see. Yeah. Well, maybe it's because the desserts were sort of more... Palatable. Palatable. Yeah. Just because it was sugar. Ice spam cream's fritters. always good. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. were well, you going to have bad ice cream? Yeah. Well, anyway, spam fritters will be back post no deal Brexit. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the spam three, fritters, three, 20 quid each. So it might well work, actually, <laughs> yeah. your plan. We're yes. all heading down the yeah. school. Let's have your last okay. one, then. So, do you know The Purge, the film franchise, The Purge? I do not. It's basically a horror film franchise where the concept is... For one day a year, murder is legal. Oh, right? I have heard about this. Yeah, yeah, there's a few of them. There's one like Purge election night. Right. The purge, but for one day a year, men can't tweet. Definitely. That's yeah, my idea. For sure. Yeah, then no one would explain my jokes back to me. Yeah, I think One some, day a year. Mm. No tweeting. <laughs> yeah. You're the trailblazer in this because you've just had more than a month. Yeah. Well, you're not really looking at Twitter. Yeah. I, I don't, don't think feel you poorer do it, for not listening, not reading Twitter. Do you, it's, I bet Twitter can be quite cruel. It's not, I, you know, the funny thing is, it's, it was less about things, people saying rude things about me because that's uh, been going on for a long time. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's more that you walk into Twitter and it's like walking into a pub brawl where somebody's yeah. putting a bottle in someone's face. Do you know what I've but started then, doing? Go on. If some, if some angry right wing anti Semite wants to call me some interesting names, I've started writing about apology accepted. <laughs> they, they, they hate that. Oh, they hate that. Yeah, I think it's sort of uh, quite destructive. 
Yeah, but it's good for Edinburgh shows. <laughs> good for Edinburgh shows, yeah. that is probably true. Uh, speaking of which, your Edinburgh show, Supersonic 90s Kid, people can see at the yes, Bill Murray in the London. The Bill Murray, 26th of September. Suze, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, that was episode 52. Yeah, and it's very happy that we've got to a year, uh, but it's also sad that Alex Feist-Bryce, who's done lots of the research for this show, uh, is leaving us. Alex, I can't believe you're leaving us. I know, it's a sad day. What, what, what is it about us that is easy to reject like this? You're just so unbearable, both <laughs> You're going off to be a chief executive? Yeah, of a small charity, a small human rights charity called Rights Info. And it's it's pro-human rights? Yeah, yeah, definitely on that side of the fence. Yeah, so maybe we'll get you back on as a as a guest sometime. Definitely. Anytime. And you've worked for you worked on the podcast over the last year, you've worked for Ed for 18 months. Absolutely. Was he tough in the job interview, by the way? Yeah, fairly. Very, very nice and friendly, but Tender. asked me some kind of... Tender! Um, <laughs> Pro- questions. Probing questions, tough and tender. Did he ask you those kind oh, of abstract questions? <laughs> if you were, you know, if you were an animal, which animal would you be, or anything like that? Yeah, that was it. Was the whole interview? Do I look like, like a badger? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What have been your highlights? Ooh, I guess the podcast has been my highlight. Getting um, to know me. Yeah, being in your house, house. chatting <laughs> to Sarah. I mean, it's all about you, really. Yeah, yeah. Highlights. If you were to ask either Ed or myself for shirt advice, which shirt to buy, who would you ask me? Oh, definitely you, Jeff. Ed only criticises my shirts. They're far too flamboyant and I feel um, really bad. stylish. He, and, he shirt and shames you. you. Absolutely. I feel bad. Old man at CNA over there. There have been mm. moments where it's been very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What is, the, what is the truth behind the Reasons to be Cheerful WhatsApp group? It is true that we, we created that to leave Ed out of certain conversations <laughs> yeah. so we, we could talk about him. Yeah. Um, if, if Ed is feeling a little bit grumpy, maybe he's not had his morning snack, what's your best way of handling it? Um, tickle him. Tickle him. Um, and if Ed and I were drowning, who would you save? Oh, I don't think I could answer that. Maybe you for your shit advice? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think I'd try and save you both somehow. Yeah, okay. I'm sure you would. Well, well, you've been absolutely brilliant, Alex, and you know, lots of the very good ideas that people have heard on this podcast have been down to you, and so we're incredibly grateful to you. Give him a little kiss. Aww. I caught it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Emma Caution produced our podcast. Alex has done all the, the backup and research with Lindsay Todd. Uh, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the eye dance. Ed Seed composed the music. And the artwork was provided by Emily Power. He's been my late in life friend. He's been the third person in my marriage. And these have been 12 cheerful months. Oh. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.